In the New Testament, we're told to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So we're kind of thinking about that, this series, as we talk about uh, music. Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. I've suggested that the way we would um, distinguish them one from the other are is by calling the psalms, psalms are songs or music that is sung or played to God. Hymns are music or songs that are sung to God or about God, sorry. And finally, spiritual songs are songs that in a, an interesting way are sung by God or played by God. Uh, I, I wanna explain some things today and hope hope you can track the way my mind goes. Afterwards you can say whether you could or not. I wanna talk about cultures and just see if you can bear with me on this. Every culture attempts to shape its people. So let's, let's sort of zoom back out from that and think about wh- what we mean by culture. Culture is, is just kind of the environment in which we live. It's, it's y- you know, the skin we live in, the lives that we live. It's the way we do things, the way we think, and so on. And there are all kinds of cultures. And one of the, the main thrusts of culture is that culture will try to shape its people. So um, whether it's a culture, maybe a subculture, a counterculture, as we try to sort of get our minds around those, um, culture might kind of be a subset of empire or movement, uh, even of nation or people or club or something. So, so there's something bigger, let's say the empire, because we've been talking about the Roman Empire, and I will in just a moment. Uh, inside of the Roman Empire was a culture. And in, in its expression as a culture, the Roman Empire tried to shape its people. And so the ways that we shape one another within our culture are are varied. But you can tell that people belong to something beyond the culture that they see. You can learn something about the empire that they're from or the nation that they're from or the people that they're from or the club that they're from um, by the way they live out their being part of whatever it is that is that entity that, that would kind of describe them. So if I go a step from that, one of the ways that a culture is shaped is by its music. And when, when we figure that out, not only is a culture shaped by its music, but a culture is re- reflected by its music. So you can, you can kind of work two directions on this. Um, you can think about a culture and then examine its music or songs or various art forms or you can go backwards and say, let's have a listen to some music or let's have a look at some art. And as we identify that music or that art as belonging to a culture, we will be able to understand that the music is actually reflecting the culture. And it's reflecting, because it's reflecting a culture, it's reflecting the empire or the movement 
that is the, the, the big picture into which the culture is seeking to shape people in their belonging. And we've probably experienced that in many ways without even recognizing. Maybe you've been shaped by the culture of your school. Uh, I grew up in Ireland where we were largely shaped by the culture of our school. Um, and one of the ways that that culture was shaped or we were shaped in it was by singing our school song. Lift up your voices, Sullivan Upper. It was the school song, and I can still sing every word of it, every line of it. I can even sing, you know, the parody that the students or pupils would make of the, the school song. We wore a uniform, and our school was very, very strict, and so the uniform had to be properly worn. And to my embarrassment now, I look back at old pictures of myself, and we wore short pants with our uniform for at least the first few forms and um, you know I had knobbly knees and but I tell you what my, my socks were always pulled up to the knee um, my tie was always tied straight my blazer was always on properly and if people saw me they knew by the way I was behaving that I belonged to a culture and that culture was being shaped by the empire called Sullivan Upper Secondary School in Hollywood, Northern Ireland. Maybe it's a, a football club or a, um, uh, some other sports club, and it has a uniform. It even has its own songs, right? If, if you're really into football, real football, and you go back to Britain, um, you will recognize that you're in a stadium watching a football game because there is a chorus of singing. It's It's... The songs of that club, right? And so y you see how that happens, that, that the, the culture shapes its people. It, it says, when you are part of this culture, you behave this way. Um, you sing songs this way, you wear clothes this way. Um, you, you may have icons or symbols of your culture that people would recognize you by. Um, you, you may have various ways that as a culture y you show yourself. Maybe your very language, the way you talk, is part of the culture in which you belong and that culture has been shaped or has been shaping you as a response to the empire or the club or the nation or organization or whatever it is that it all started out with. In the Roman Empire, um, shaping was very important as, as its culture was enforced. And, and it, it, it came by force and was, was managed by force. But one of the ways that the Roman Empire um, affected its culture and its culture shaped people was by its hymns. And so as we've been thinking about hymns, um, we would tend, I think, to imagine that hymns are just part of, of Christianity, aren't they? I mean, aren't hymns just what people in church have always sung? Well, we have always sung hymns and will continue to sing hymns more loudly as time goes on. But long before that, um, other cultures were using music to shape their people. And the Roman Empire was shaping its culture and its culture was shaping its people 
by music, by hymns. And so in all kinds of literature, we find little pieces or big pieces of poetry or hymns that are about the emperor. So if you were part of the Roman Empire, what you believed or what you were being shaped to believe was something that we now call emperor worship. The, the, the people of the Roman Empire, including those in Colossae that we're going to think about today, um, they worshiped the emperor. In the time that Colossians was written, the emperor, in fact, was Nero. He, he became one of, and perhaps the, the lead um, um, persecutor of Christianity. Um, he, he blamed the Christians for Rome burning and so on. But if, if you grew up in Colossae, if, if you woke up in the morning, you were part of an empire, and the culture of that empire was, was shaping you. Uh, it was shaping you by statues that you saw as you walked along the pathway. It was shaping you by the hymns that you would learn and would sing in which you would attribute deity to the emperor. You would worship the emperor Nero as God. It, it all began with them thinking that there was something beyond the emperor that was actually deity, Zeus, for example. But the emperor, beginning with Augustus, was considered to be, while he was living, at least the mouthpiece of Zeus, at least the messenger of the gods. When he died, he was deified. He was called a god, and so when the emperor died, he was thought of having ascended into the place of the gods and was one of the gods. And so this empire uh, was, was one in which one of the notable characteristics was emperor worship. You worshiped your emperor, and you would sing hymns to that emperor. What would the hymns be about? They'd be about the fact that the emperor was responsible for everything that there, that there was. That the emperor um, was to be viewed actually as the creator of, of the whole universe. That the emperor was the one who had done all good things for you. If, if there's anything that has come your way, it has come because of the beneficence of the emperor. Because the emperor had your your well-being at heart and and so his his edicts his ways they were all for you and you had nothing that was not delivered to you by the emperor so praise the emperor in fact as i said last week as you were walking along the street one of the ways that that's this culture was shaping you was in your greeting caesar is lord is the appropriate greeting yes the lord is caesar and Augustus was always thought, Augustus Caesar was always thought of as the kind of the primary emperor that ever there was, and every emperor came after him sort of in his footsteps. So Caesar is Lord. Yes, the Lord is Caesar. But there were these mutinous characters on the street who would defy that piece of the culture, that, that language piece of the culture, by saying, no, Jesus is Lord. And we might say that 
today, we might contradict somebody's kind of greeting. They might say, have a good, have a good day, and you'll say, don't tell me what kind of day to have. And you say, whoa, I was kind of rude. Well, maybe I'm having that kind of day. Well, you couldn't be obstinate like that in the Roman Empire. If someone said Caesar is Lord and you said no, Jesus is Lord, they would report you to the authorities and you would be charged with atheism of defying the deity of the emperor. And so there are these pieces of hymns from all kinds of poets and songwriters and choirs that were actually recruited and trained to praise the emperor. And against this way that the Roman Empire culture was shaping its people was this group of Christians who were actually countercultural. So, so there's that term again. They began as a subculture. And a, as a subculture, they weren't too much of a problem. I mean, you could gather, you could do whatever it is you do. As long as you don't defy the emperor, as long as you don't um, you know, go against the status quo, that you can do what you want. But people began to hear more and more about what these Christians were saying and doing. And they began to view them not only as a subculture, but they viewed them as a counterculture, that, that they were against the culture that the Roman Empire was shaping its people to be part of. And so the Christians became marginalized more and more and more. And as they were marginalized, they would gather in places like Colossae in house churches or in sometimes secret gatherings. Um, and they began to develop their own culture. They began to develop the way Christians were. And it was more and more against the way of the empire. One of the ways that Christians were against the empire was to have counter-empire songs. Um, scholars now are calling them resistance hymns. That the hymn fragments that we find in the New Testament, last week we saw one in Philippians, we're going to see another one next week in John chapter one. But now in Colossians, these three fragments and maybe some others that are tucked into the text are actual pieces of resistance hymns. And I would not have thought of these hymns in those terms because the hymns in themselves have beautiful theology. They are what we call Christocentric. They are Christ-centered hymns. They're all about him. So we saw last week that in Philippians, the fragment of the hymn that Paul is quoting is one that, that extols Jesus because of his humility, because of his servanthood, and then talks about the fact that he therefore has been exalted and given the name above every name and the, uh, that his name every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. That was a resistance hymn, not just a lovely hymn about Jesus, not just a hymn that gives us great theology about Jesus, but it actually was part of the culture of Christianity, this subculture now becoming a counterculture in the middle of a hostile culture, the hostile culture of the Roman Empire. Um, when we come to Colossians, the, the text that we find um, is one that we, 
we are able to organize into two verses or two strophes is the technical term. Um, that, that they were, in, in terms of the form, in terms of the way that they are designed, they were a piece of poetry, but they were a piece of poetic hymn. And one of the ways that, that this kind of hymn was used was kind of antiphonally that one group of people would say something and then another group would answer them back. And in Colossians 2, um, chapters, or verses 15 to 20, we have the two sections that are maybe the antiphonal sections where one group is saying the first part and the second group says the second part. When we go back and examine the text of Colossians 1, um, I, I have, if you were interested in it, I have a whole list of attributions to Roman hymns in which the exact words of Colossians 1 are used. So the words that we come across in Colossians 1, which are about Jesus, were not written in the first instance about Jesus. They were written about the emperor. And they were seized by the Christians in, in this resistance hymnody, and they sang those words um, in a way to defy the Roman Empire. And while the Roman Empire's culture was shaping its people, the Christian counterculture was shaping its people with a better hymn. And so, both in Philippians 1 and in Colossians 3, we have a resistance hymn that now we embrace as being entirely and fully and truly about Jesus, and yet that's not where it came from. And so against the culture, there is this use of art uh, to shape a subculture and, in fact, a counterculture. I think that's an interesting phenomenon that is, is important for us to consider as Christians. In which way are we shaped by our culture and in which way are our songs reflective of the ways that we've been shaped by the culture. If, if people from Mars or someplace would come and would have a look at us and say, well, what are they like? Like, wh what do these people think? What do they believe? And they listen to our music. If, if they were to, to do the backwards journey and say, well, since this is what they sing about, and this is the way that they sing, it may be that the empire that they're part of, or whatever term they would use, is like this, if that's what they sing about. So as we think about what we sing about and what we listen to, um, what does it tell us ourselves about what we actually believe or what we are actually part of? And to what degree is our art uniquely Christian? Um, and to what degree is our art actually counter-cultural as it should be? Uh, we have a, a strange position as, as the people of God. We are, someone has said, in the world, for the world, against the world. So we live with this ambivalence, right? That we're in the world, we belong in the world, and we're for the world because God loves the world, but at the same time, we're against the world. And so, somehow or other, the culture of us uh, should be shaping us in ways that would 
make us more truly members of the kingdom of God. And, and, and Jesus all the time was making comparisons, wasn't he? He was saying, the kingdom of this world is like this, or the Gentiles do this, but not me, not you, not us, because we are not of this world. Jesus said to his disciples, look, if the world has trouble with you, no wonder, because they have trouble with me. So they will have trouble with you. And, and the, the Christians discovered that in spades because not long into the next few centuries, they experienced martyrdom, they experienced incredible persecution, and their culture was becoming more and more distinct from the Roman Empire in which they were still placed. So against all of that, here is what Paul quotes as a hymn. And we read it as a countercultural hymn. We read it as a resistance hymn, a revolution hymn, in two parts. First part says this, he is the image of the invisible God. Image of the invisible God. So Susan has helped us reflect on um, invisibility and, and visibility. When it says that, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, um, the term image usually refers to the, the, the way that a coin is stamped. So do you remember when, when the disciples were arguing about paying taxes and Jesus said to him, do you, have, do you have a coin in your pocket? And they did. Somebody pulled out a coin and Jesus said, well, whose inscription is on the coin? It was Caesar's. And Jesus said, all right, render to Caesar what is Caesar's, render to God what is God's. Very profound and wise answer to, to the dilemma. But the, the very coin um, explains what this term means. The image of the emperor um, has, has come from an exact imprint that would be placed in the minting of the coin. And so Jesus is called the image of the invisible God. So exactly what Susan has said to us, we don't know what God's like. We've not seen God. Nobody has ever seen God at any time. But in John, we're told that the Son explains him to us. The Son is the manifestation of the Father. And Paul remembers this little piece of the hymn, and he says he's actually the image of the invisible God. It's, it's as though you, has, you had taken the invisible God and that the invisible God could be a stamp, and when that stamp is effected onto a human being, it's Jesus. So everything that God was that was intended to be communicated to us is in the person of Jesus. He is the firstborn of all creation. The firstborn word is a word that belonged to the emperor. Who is the most important person in the whole kingdom, in the whole empire? It's the emperor. What term do you use about the emperor? You use the term firstborn. He is the most important. He is the primary person. He is the prime minister, the president, the king, the emperor then where did everything come from that's around us? Well, 
we, we've learned in school that everything around us came from the emperor, from the, the gods, and the emperor is one of the gods, and the emperor is part and parcel of this whole panoply of deity that has made everything that there is. And the hymn that the Christians sang um, blatantly used the terms of the empire and said, by him all things were created. And, and make no mistake, no Roman citizen walking past a, a home, a house church, and hearing them sing this hymn would think they're singing about the emperor. He would be affronted by the fact that they're singing an empire hymn about somebody else. It, it's a mutinous movement. It's a, it's a revolution. Um, it is radically in opposition to the world in which they're finding themselves. But the truth is, by him all things were created, what things, um, both in heavens and on earth? S- something I love about Paul, and since this isn't actually, isn't actually attributed to him, maybe this is where he got it from. This is a, an extensive declaration of who and what Jesus is and has done. Whoever wrote the hymn, whoever you know, seized and used the hymn, Um, thought of every possible option. And and as far as creation is concerned, well, by him all things were created. What do you mean all things? Well, everything in the heavens and everything on earth. Everything you can see and everything you can't see. All right, that kind of covers it, right? In In the heavens, that's the whole expanse around us. The earth is what we live on. What we can see is what we can see. What we can't see is what we know is there, but we can't see it. But apparently Jesus made it, not the emperor. Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. And and there, there's a um, kind of a delineation of spiritual beings or angelic beings. One of the problems that they had at Colossae or one of the, things that they were into that they shouldn't have been was angel worship. And we'll not go there today. Um, but Paul wanted them to stop worshiping angels. And, and so in citing this hymn, he counters that as well and says, you know, of all of the ranks of spiritual beings that you're familiar with or familiar about, Jesus actually created all of those things, whether they are on heaven or earth, whether they're visible or invisible, whether they are thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Let's see, is there anything I've not, no, that, that's about it. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. Who's the most important person in the empire? Well, the culture wants to shape its people. It wants to shape its people by its hymns, by its songs. So the people would sing this hymn. And they would believe that this hymn was about the emperor. And he was, as far as they could tell, someone that was superhuman, beyond human, before human, before all things. And if there's anything good that comes to us, it has come from the emperor. Paul quotes the hymn that says, no, He is before all things, 
And next week we'll see a little bit more about that because John talks lots about Jesus being before all things. And then there's this curious little phrase, in him all things hold together. I'm not a scientist, but I understand that there, there is something in matter that holds it together. There's something that um, restrains creation from flying apart. Apparently, it should naturally fly apart, except something is holding it together. They call it the Colossian factor. Something makes the world work. Something makes the world hold together, stay together. And Paul says that this hymn is perfect about Jesus. Let's use it. The second stanza, so that might have been the first part of the, the antiphonal calling back and forward, but the second one comes right after it. And, and you'll see how it parallels sort of idea and phrase by phrase. He is also head of the body. Oh, now, now the church. Um, all of the language in the second part is specifically perhaps twisted towards a Christology and, and away from the Roman hymn. So that the Roman hymn had all the terms in the first verse, but not the terms of the second verse. So as, as you know, Mr. Um, Romanus is walking past and listens to the house church singing, he notices that they have a second verse to their hymn, and it doesn't sound like what he remembered from school or whatever. It says he's also the head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. So thinking about creation and, and the fact that he is before all things and the reason for all things and, and all of that, when it comes to the church, now we find that, that the church is, is becoming not just subcultural but definitely countercultural in saying there is a king over the church, there is a lord over the church who's not the emperor or anyone else that you might construe. He's head of the body of the church and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Remember that the emperor should always be deferred to. The emperor should always be given first place, but no, not in, in the Colossian hymn. And through him to reconcile all things to himself. Uh, this maybe rhymes with the, this Colossian factor idea that what is it that holds all things together? Well, what is it that holds the church together? What is it that holds his body together? Um, we're told that all of the fullness would dwell in him because of the Father's good pleasure. And through him, God would reconcile all things to himself having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. So the whole thing takes a shift in direction that, and it has a spiritual, ecclesiastical spin on what began as a hymn that belonged to the emperor. It's all about Jesus. As I thought that through, um, I wondered how all of this is, is practical for us in, in terms of the, the logic. So every culture tries to shape its people. So our culture is Christianity. It, 
it now for us is not a subculture or a counterculture. It's, it's the culture to which we belong. It, it belongs in the second stanza, in the second verse. So if a culture will shape its people, um, how does Christianity want to shape us? And specifically, if Christianity is wanting to shape us even by our music, even by our arts, how much sort of latitude, how much space is there for us to explore that and say, let's not just, you know, take over the art of the world. We'll take, take it over for what it's worth. But let's make sure that, that our expression of the arts, our expression of music is continuing to shape us to be the people we ought to be, to be the, the kingdom we ought to be. Um, what do the words of, of modern uh, hymns tell us about ourselves if, if we work it backwards? And what should our hymns be telling us um, that is true to the culture of which we're part. Um, some people who've looked at the church in the last decade or two have complained about the fact that, that there are very few songs of lament in, in the Christian hymn book sort of these days and are looking for songs of lament and remembering that in the, the, the hymnody of Israel, there was a lot of lament, a lot of sorrow, a lot of heartbreak. Sometimes these observers have said, well, our, our songs are always sort of victorious songs, they're always, um, you know, celebratory songs. Um, where are the songs of lament? How, how is the fact that Christianity is a Christianity that understands the sadness of the brokenness of our world and lives in in the context of that sadness, but also with the hope out of that sadness. Um, I don't know, if, if you look more at classical music, you, you might be able to track back a little bit more and say, wow, classical music was different from modern music in these respects. And in what way did classical music reflect the thinking of the day and as opposed to modern music reflecting the thinking of this day. And, and then if we get our heads working that way, we can say, well, what about us? I mean, are, are we simply people who are um, mimicking the world, its culture, by our art, by our music, by our hymns, by our songs? Or is there something distinct about that music? And and I'm not um, I'm not picking fights with anything. I certainly think rock music has its place, and rock music is not of the devil. Like I said, some guy wrote a book. Why should the devil have all the good music? And some great music is at the form the world uses as well. But is there anything in there? Is there is there something that um, is shaping us um, into the, the kind of people that we should be? Uh, here, here's a crazy idea. Um, there's a song that was written and, and sung by Chicago. Do you remember Chicago? 
Okay. Yeah, Wayne does. Surely does. Okay. And I don't, I don't know why the words, uh, the lyrics of this song came to mind, but they did. It, it starts, do you remember? It, it starts, da-da-da, da-da-da. What's the song? And then it goes, it's this kind of crazy A-flat key and then goes to a B chord into a strange setup. It says this. You know our love is meant to be the kind of love that lasts forever. Remember that? And I want you here with me from tonight until the end of time. You should know everywhere I go, every, always on my mind, in my heart, in my soul, baby, you're the meaning in my life. You're the inspiration. You bring meaning to my life. Right? It's a cool song. Me, you, you bring meaning to my life. Um, what brings meaning to our lives? They, they say today that the thing that, that people are searching for is meaning. Even as, as Christians think about how we talk to and about non-Christians, um, the language we used to use about sin and guilt and forgiveness is, is often language that, that just is above the heads of people or it's just not on their radar. When we say to people, well, you must feel guilty for your sin, they have to stretch a lot to agree with that. Uh, do they feel guilty for their sin? Do they need forgiveness for their sin? Is that what they feel? So folks that are watching them say, no, what the world is longing for is meaning. And the gospel actually brings full meaning, phenomenal meaning to life. So, so maybe the, the door that we use is not a door of guilt and shame, but it's a door of meaning. If people's lives have no meaning, that's their experience of sinfulness, of the fallenness of, of our world. And when people look for meaning in our world, it seems to me that the most likely place they're looking for meaning is in relationships. So I was trying to think that through. I mean, where do they look for meaning? People look for meaning in their jobs, for sure. But even in, in these days, when jobs are kind of slippery. Will people still keep looking for their meaning there or will they revert to actually what is in back of, of everything? It's in relationships, ultimately, that people find their meaning. What matters to people in these days, even in the pandemic? What, what matters is the set of relationships that we have. Why are we worried? We're worried about our, our parents, our grandparents in nursing homes. We're worried about our friends. We're being careful for one another because we care about relationships. If we didn't care about relationships, we would not wear masks, would not distance, we'd not you know, follow the protocol, but we care about one another. We, we care about relationships because in those relationships, we find our meaning. And again, if we do our backtracking and we go to the Chicago song, you're the meaning in my life is about relationships. It's about romance. It's about love. And so if the Martian were to look at us and say, well, what does that say about 
their empire or their culture well. It must all be about the person or the persons in, in whom they invest meaning for their lives. The hymn in Colossians 1 is a hymn that is all-encompassing about one thing, about Jesus. So you want to talk about the world? You want to talk about creation? He made everything. What do you mean everything? Everything in heaven, everything on earth, visible, invisible, every rank of end. Everything you can think of is about him. When you think about the church, he's the head of the church. And he makes the church fit together. If the emperor pretends that he was the, the benefactor of, of every good thing, he was deluded. Everything that is good in our lives, particularly in this culture that is the church, this, this movement of God, everything that is good for us is Jesus. Everything that we are about is Jesus. Everything that we come from and move towards is Jesus. Every problem that we have had has been dealt with by Jesus, by his blood on the cross. We know it's a matter of sin and shame. We know we need forgiveness, and we know we've had forgiveness by Jesus. And the hymn says, everything is about Jesus. So if I were to go to Chicago and say, actually, that song's not about some lover. That's a good song to sing about Jesus. You're the meaning in my life. You're my inspiration. What if we, we did what the Colossians did, which is seize a world's song or hymn and say, ah, I have better, a, a better point than you did in, in that song. And so I, I think, in what way is it true that he's the meaning of my life, that he's my inspiration, that I need him in every part of my life? See, um, that's a trick question because once we examine ourselves, we find out that, that he's not, many times, the meaning in our lives, the inspiration. Why do we do what we do? What is our inspiration? It should be the inspiration of Jesus, our Savior. It should be that he's the mother duck after whom we pattern everything that we do and we say it, it's about him. And then when we say, well, what's it like to be like him? And then we're caught because you come to Philippians and you find out that you should be like this, which is to be a servant, which is to be humble-hearted, which is to be contra-cultural, in, in every way that the world builds itself up and individuals up, we need to say that's not important to us. What is ultimately important and what is presently important is the supremacy of Jesus. And God echoes that and says, because of the way he lived, I've exalted him. I've given him the name above every name. And for all of eternity, everything that there is will worship him for who he is. So to whatever degree, I have to answer the question with the wrong answer about what's the meaning of my life? What's the inspiration? 
I need to turn it back and say, well, how in that circumstance can Jesus be the meaning of my life? How, how does he bring a meaning to the difficult times? How does he bring meaning into the middle of this? By our presence in our world with our neighbors in, in our world, how is Jesus the meaning? And how does he inspire when was the last time I consciously decided to do something because I was inspired to be like Jesus? What would Jesus do? To say, wow, I, I really do find that that's the truth. And, and I am being shaped by this culture, by this notion that Jesus is the one. He is supreme. He reigns supreme in my life. He's the meaning in my life. He's the inspiration. He gives meaning to my life. This Colossian hymn was seized and was used in the church. And it proved, uh, even though it was part of the shaping of loyal citizens to the empire, we need to be shaped by different things, like the, the counterculture of Christianity we can drift into being loyal to something other than Christ. And I, I think, without messing in politics, I think the, the recent election is, is a perfect example where Christians have served the wrong master. Right? Who's emperor? Who, who's the one who, who does good for us? All good for us. So enough of that. He's the meaning of my life. He's the inspiration. Is that true? So I invite you to examine and find ways that uh, that part of your being shaped is going in the right direction.